0: Welcome back to the Core EM Podcast, core content for anyone, anywhere, and just in time. This is the official podcast of the NYU Bellevue EM Residency Program. I'm Anand Nathan,
1: And I'm Jenny Beckesme.
0: This week, we're going to do another episode of Morning Report Pearls, but both of us got to go to the Essentials of MCRIT Conference, the EMCRIT Conference. And instead of just doing our Morning Report Pearls, we thought we would discuss some of the key pearls from that conference.
1: Yeah, I love this idea because this was a fantastic conference and there was so much amazing education. So let's just dive right in. We've got a lot we want to cover. The first set of pearls comes from a talk by Sarah Gray on ventricular tachycardia storm. Now, she had a simple management algorithm that she went through. Shock, antidysrhythmics, looking for an underlying cause, repeat.
0: Of course, there's a lot of nuance here, and Sarah goes into the antidysrhythmics she would use. Her first line is procainamide in the stable VT patient, and the procameo trial from last year demonstrated a higher conversion rate with procainamide than with amiodarone with less hypotension. Sarah is going with 10 mg per kg over 20 minutes of the procainamide.
1: Now we'll put a link to a full discussion of procameo in the show notes. If percainomide doesn't work, Sarah would go with amiodarone as her second line, but she notes that she would do multiple doses of the 150 milligram bolus up to three grams if needed. And if the patient is still refractory, she would strongly consider an esmolol load and infusion.
0: One of the questions that came up is when to use dual sequence defibrillation. And Sarah was very specific here. If you shock the patient and they break from VT but return to it, That's not an indication to do dual sequence. Your defibrillation is working. Dual sequence is for patients where they don't break from their VT with a standard shock.
1: All of the above really applies to stable VT. In the patient with a rest from VT, Sarah stated she will typically do four to five standard shocks before doing dual sequence. And she prefers the pads to be one set anterior-posterior and one set over the sternum and left lateral at the PMI.
0: In addition to her talk on VT, Sarah also did a live demonstration of a resuscitative hysterotomy, better known as the perimortem C-section. She stressed a number of key points, starting with having a clear goal in mind, which is to save mom. Removing the baby removes pressure from the IVC and the aorta, improving blood flow and blood return to the heart, and blood in the mom stops being diverted to the placenta. All of these things are going to improve mom's chance for survival.
1: The simple way to think about when to do the resuscitative hysterotomy is simply to say, if the mother is arresting and I can palpate the uterus above the umbilicus, there may be a benefit to taking the baby out of the way.
0: Sarah also simplified the procedure itself. Take a 10-blade scalpel and make an incision running from the xiphoid all the way down to the pubic symphysis. Cut through the sub-Q fat until you reach the uterus, which will be the most anterior structure. You don't have to worry about getting bowel because those things are going to be pushed out of the way. Make a nick with the scalpel that's large enough for two fingers. Place your fingers in and make a vertical cut with your scissors, using your fingers to guard you from cutting the baby. Remove the baby and the placenta. Pack the abdomen and uterus with sterile towels, and you can simply leave the skin incision open while you focus on continued resuscitation of mother and baby.
1: Sarah made it look easy, but to get to that point, you're going to want to run over it and over it and over it in your head. This is one of those things that you should mentally rehearse to feel like you're actually comfortable with it, because the times to actually do it are few and far between, obviously. Now next, Tom DeLory, a hematologist, gave a number of talks, but my favorite pearl he discussed was recognizing thrombotic thrombocytopenic purpura, or TTP. The key in Tom's mind is to consider the diagnosis in all patients who are sick and have low platelets, because it can be really easy to miss. Now, the combination of factors that he's looking for are thrombocytopenia, end organ damage, and microangiopathic hemolytic anemia, or MAHA, which he looks for by looking for schistocytes and the LDH.
0: In particular, he stated the LDH has to be markedly elevated for him to even consider the diagnosis. Now, next after Tom DeLore was Josh Farkas, better known for his Palmcrit blog, and he gave a number of great talks, starting with dispelling a little myth about lactated ringers and hyperkalemia. Now, I've heard this rumor many times. You can't give LR to patients who are hyperkalemic because it's got K in it and the K will go up. But Josh reminded us that it's not about the amount of potassium. It's really about the concentration. LR has a low concentration of potassium and studies show that serum potassium will actually go down with LR and not up. While with normal saline, it's actually going to go up because of the acidemia that's induced by the saline.
1: So Josh says there's no need to hold the LR But isotonic bicarb may be even better as it helps with shifting the potassium. Now, Josh also talked about Brash syndrome, which is bradycardia, renal failure, an AV blocker medication on board, shock, and hyper-K. Now, Brash is simply a mnemonic that Josh created to remember all of these pieces, and it's not a syndrome that's described in the literature
0: yet. But it's a real thing that we see, and it's not that infrequent. And now that we've got a name for it, we're more likely to pick it up. The basic pathophysiology is that renal failure leads to hyperkalemia, which synergizes with the AV blocker to cause decreased perfusion, worsening hyperkalemia, and so on. The steps in treatment are actually pretty simple. Start an epinephrine drip to increase perfusion, increase contractility, and push potassium into the cells. Treat the hyperkalemia as you normally would, calcium, insulin, and these treatments also help the AV blocker toxicity that's occurred. Most of these patients are hypovolemic, so resuscitate aggressively with lactated ringers or isotonic bicarb. And then Josh suggests what he calls the nephron bomb. And Jenny, I can honestly say that no one's made the nephron sound cool before, but nephron bomb, that, that kind of works for me. And this Absolutely. is a combination of medications that's going to help to get the potassium out of the body. Furosemide, acetazolamide, fludrocortisone, chlorothiazide, and continually repleting the volume.
1: There's a fantastic post on the Brash syndrome on the Palm Crit site, and we'll put a link to that in the show notes. Now, in another of Josh's talks, he talked about the simplified approach to status epilepticus. He stressed that it's really important to stop convulsive status early because of the serious complications that can develop after prolonged seizure. And these include things like brain injury, aspiration and ARDS, arrhythmias, MI, cardiac arrest, hyperkalemia, rhabdo, and hyperthermia.
0: In Josh's algorithm, he combines the initial lorazepam doses into a larger, heftier lorazepam dose. So instead of giving two milligrams and then repeating it if it fails, he gives 0.1 mg per kg once. If this fails to stop the seizure, he skips over the phenobarb phenytoin step that is often in there because he says the majority of patients, if they failed benzos, they're not going to respond to those medications either. And so he goes directly to a ketofol intubation. He likes to use ketamine 200 milligrams, propofol 1.5 to 2 mg per kg, and then a big dose of rock to put the patient down. He says with this combination, you are going to get the seizure stopped.
1: So he actually notes that he's going to use a little bit lower dose of rock than he will on a regular standard RSI. So he's going to use 0.6 mg per kilogram here. And he's using this for a specific reason. He says by lowering the dose, he gets a slower onset of the uranium a slower onset of the paralysis. So it goes to work in two to three minutes. He says this is going to allow the key fall time to work to stop the seizure, which will be reassuring that you aren't paralyzing a seizing patient. Now, he follows this up, of course, with a propofol infusion for continued sedation and adds pressors if needed for blood pressure support. Now, the fourth faculty member at the conference was Chris Hicks, and he gave a number of fantastic talks on team performance and trauma
0: resuscitation. Hicks started off with communication and resuscitation and how essential it is. One big tip he gave was to dump mitigating phrases like, can someone get my fluids? Or I think we should intubate. The problem with these type of statements is that they leave interpretation up to the listener. How do I know that you want me to do it or not? And that's not what you want in the resuscitation. Instead, we need to use direct, specific orders using people's names. Jenny, set up to intubate. Chris, grab the fluids and run them wide open.
1: He also recommended that we add in brief sit reps or situation reports. This is basically a statement of what's going on right now. During the recess, we can add in tactical pauses where we state the sit rep, what we've done to that point,
0: and what's next. Finally, Hick's last tip was for us to consider adopting fragment orders, or fraggos. These are short phrases that are specific and direct as we resuscitate to make sure we're all clear on the information. Some examples are say again, confirm, or read back. To do this, though, you've got to make sure that your team is all trained up on the phrases so it's streamlined.
1: Now, Hicks also gave a combined lecture with Sarah Gray. And I have to say, I kind of love the Are combined lecture. Of I love I'm, the dynamic. I'm a little
0: jealous of their ability to do that. Let's be honest. That was absolutely fantastic. And yeah. that takes a lot of work to get right.
1: A lot of rehearsal there. Now, in their combined talk, they talked about how to mentally prepare for something bad coming to you in the ED. Basically, what you should do after the EMS phone rings. They talked about several steps you can take to prepare yourself, including focusing on likely algorithms and scripts you're going to need for the recess and procedures you may need to perform that scare you. Mentally run through these things so that you're ready when they walk in the door.
0: Next, prepare yourself. This is a brief three-step process. First, take a breath. Second, say something positive to yourself. This will increase your confidence and decrease cortisol levels. Third, give yourself a trigger word that helps you to focus on the task at hand. This can be anything, and you have to make it yours and something you do every time. Some examples are, I got this, or relax, or smooth. It depends on the person, and it depends on what is going to work for you.
1: And last, you're going to prep your team. This is the pre-brief, and you should go over four questions. First, what do we know? Second, what do we expect to do? Third, what will we change or do differently if these things fail? And I think that's a crucial one. And then last, what are people's roles? Define specific roles.
0: This is fantastic. These are some great pearls from an absolutely amazing conference with some fantastic speakers. Go back and listen again. There's some good stuff in there that you can take to work tomorrow. And that's all for the Core EM podcast this week. Come on over and check out the site at coreem.net. We've got a ton of great core content emergency medicine. We'll have a core post up on Wednesday and a journal update up on Thursday. Don't forget to check our Facebook page, falls on Google+, and on Twitter where our handle is at core underscore em. Thanks, and see you all next week.